Hello and welcome to the TBG Real Estate Podcast, where we connect you with some of the most innovative and exciting real estate leaders today. We will show you that there are numerous paths to a successful career in the real estate industry, and that some of your greatest missteps can be turned into your greatest triumphs. Without further ado, here's the head of TBG Real Estate, Chris Papa. All right, folks, welcome to this episode of the TBG Real Estate Podcast. I am your host, Chris Papa. And today we have a very special guest, Mr. Michael Lear. Michael is currently the Senior Vice President, Head of Acquisitions at the Community Development Trust in New York City. How are you doing, Michael? I'm doing well. How are you, Chris? I'm good. We were just talking how you are you're upstate. Like it seems like everyone I speak to from New York is upstate somewhere. How's that going? Uh, it's it's been lovely. I would say that um, you know, all things considered, it's been lovely. Uh, you know, we've been up here since March, uh, the middle of March. So we've, 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 we've seen the less pleasant end of winter and early spring and the, and the very pleasant summer up here as far as weather goes. But, um, you know, it was, it was both difficult and good to be, uh, away from the city on the, on when New York city was going through the, the, the brunt of the pandemic. Um, but I'm very much so looking forward to getting back. And I, I think that's true for the rest of my family as well. Yeah. How are the bugs up there? They're terrible. It's, you, you, go, <laughs> you, go, you go right in from winter into mud season and then into bug season. So, you know, my wife actually got me a, a personal net to put because I have a lot of I have a lot of um, uh, a lack of hair on the top of my head. Yeah. And so I, I, I have this net that I can put around my head if it's particularly buggy. It does not look oh, good, wow. but it works. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. That is so funny. I, I, mean, I live in California, right? And I miss the, it's hard. I miss the humidity, not like constant humidity, but I miss the humidity and the really hot weather. I grew up in Northern Northwestern New Jersey. And so, but then I totally, I always forget about the bugs. You know what I mean? Like I just, I remember I hated bugs. There's no bugs out here in California, which is great. So, um, yeah, I, I'm always like, I always, oh, you're upstate New York. Sounds wonderful. Then I'm like, oh, those darn bugs. So I'm, yeah, there's like there's like an hour or two a day where the bugs like aren't active, and that's when you want to be outside if you can. <laughs> um, so, Community Development Trust. Can you tell everyone uh, what the Community Development Trust is? Sure. So, uh, we're a national investor in affordable housing. Uh, we work with all kinds of different partners, and the the primary business that we do is we make long term equity investments, and um, we also originate and acquire long term mortgages. And you, you'll hear me say long term over and over again because it's a recurring theme. Uh, <laughs> CDT is a bottom line organization. Uh, we provide capital to preserve and create affordable housing, and also generate market rate returns for our investors, um, which are a mix of uh, commercial banks, insurance companies, pension funds, so on and so forth. Uh, we've been around for about 22 years at this point and have invested um, a little under $2 billion in debt and equity capital. Uh, our footprint is we're in 44 states um, and we've helped to pre preserve or create approximately uh, 50,000 units of affordable housing, which we think have positively impacted approximately 125,000 you know, residents, uh, which we're very, very proud of. Um, you know, we, we broadly speaking, provide long-term loans and equity to low and moderate income communities to help ensure their affordability and also to enhance the quality of life for, for the residents that, that live in those properties. Um, structurally speaking, we're a, we're a real estate investment trust. Um, we're also a member of the Federal Home Loan Bank of New York. We're a certified uh, community development financial institution, a CDFI, and we're also a Fannie Mae approved affordable housing lender. So that's the... Big, wow. big, big story of, of 
who CDT is and what we do. Um, so we should talk banks, about any of those things. Yeah. So the process is you have investors, mm-hmm. right? And then you invest in, with affordable housing developers and, and like that the next step. It, that's 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 almost exactly correct. So on the on the debt side, we you know we make we make we make first position typically forward commitments uh, on, on first position loans for tax credit deals. So we are our borrower is the you know generally speaking a tax credit limited partnership. It's really a developer with a bank attached to them. Mm-hmm. Um, and and then on the equity side, which is the the platform that I lead at CDT, uh, we we directly joint venture with um, with affordable housing developers or owners, depending on what their, their motivation is to, to acquire and preserve uh, existing, typically existing affordable housing or market rate housing that we convert into, you know, regulated affordable housing. Um, and we, we do that with uh, non-tax credit equity. So we bring like what I would jokingly call like real capital or like just <laughs> regular old private equity and structure it, you know, with uh, like-minded partners um, to, to, you know, to extend the, the the life of an affordable housing property. Gotcha. And when you say long term investments, is is that as opposed to as opposed to short term? I guess. But what's the what's the difference, and why do you why do you do long term? What does that really mean? Sure. So um, we fundamentally believe, and and this aligns, you know, v- very much so with my personal ethos, that that long term capital is better suited for um, for having robust, safe high quality, long-term preserved affordable housing than uh, short-term fund-raised horizon-limited capital um, that ultimately through its structure would, you know, the capital would present issues that a property has to deal with. And we, we you know, f- we feel the inverse of that. We don't think that capital should be driving decisions um, about how to maintain an affordable housing property, uh, about whether to sell it and be forced to sell it um, when that might not be the best thing for for, for a property. So, you know, w- we fundamentally believe that the stability of long-term capital and the stability of long-term ownership and what usually comes with it is management and stewardship over over the property um, ultimately benefits residents at the end of the day. And our our entire thesis is kind of centered around we think we can do that and also you know return market rate returns to our investors and we've been doing that for twenty two years so. Gotcha. And then I'm, I'm just reading from your, the overview of the company here it says the, the particular focus involves investing equity capital in the fifth year, 15 LIHTC communities, as well as other affordable housing communities, making long-term permanent loans on 4% and 9% LIHTC projects. Um, and some more stuff there too. So like, what is it? I've heard this thrown around before. I don't know exactly what it means, but like why year 15, what's 4%, what's 9%, what is, what does all that stuff mean? Sure, and if I get um, if if I get a little alphabet soup, you should you should rank. <laughs> I'll, I'll work on that with you too. Um, so, in a nutshell, the the bulk of the affordable housing that's produced in our country is 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 created or preserved using low income housing tax credits. the The general structure there is there you know there's a there's a developer and there's a tax credit equity provider, and that tax credit equity provider is typically structured to remain in the deal um, for for 15 years for the initial compliance period. So when you hear 15 years, it's, it's the first 15 years after the the, the tax credit equity comes. So they're in. part of the capital stack basically, right? Right. Yep. Yep. So, so think of that, now. like go back 15 years, that deal happened, they yeah. get to year 15. And then like this 
this structure, this ownership structure that was created um, for this this specific capital stack needs needs to dissolve or go away or, or transition to its next life. Um, and so you could imagine there's a there's a real mix across the country and and across you know um, uh, different business di different ways that people have operated these properties where you know some year 15 properties look as good as they did on day one they've been meticulously maintained they're wonderful and there are others that have taken taken a beating right and um and so when you get to that 15th year, really, it's anywhere between the, the 10th and 15th year. Um, and there's an opportunity to recapitalize the property. If if a lot of capital is needed, like a, if a large amount of rehabilitation is needed, then it probably will and should go through another, you know, another round of 4% of tax credits or potentially 4 and 9% tax credits. But if that's not the case, um, and there aren't, there aren't enough, um, there isn't enough bond cap in the world to, uh, uh, to do every preservation deal as, as a tax credit deal, you know, for the properties that don't need a, you know, 40 to $70,000 a unit rehab, um, that's where our capital fits, right? We can continue to operate the property, you know, responsibly and adequately capitalize the property so that it can, you know, go on to its next life for another 10 years or so. And then at that point, maybe it needs a, a tax credit, you know, resyndication and and, um, and and recapitalization. But not every uh, our our thesis on the equity side, as far as year fifteen stuff goes, really relates to not every property needs another tax credit deal every you know every literal fifteenth year. And mm. uh, we think that we're good stewards, uh, and we think that our capital is well positioned to be both honest about the capital needs of, of the properties that we acquire and also like follow through on that honesty. And do you only come in at year 15 or do you ever come in before then? It, de it really depends on what the motivations of the, you know, the, the seller group, the, the selling ownership are. So, some tax credit investors are very excited to get out at year 10 at the first possible moment that they can. And so, you know, we've bought things, um, uh, and recapitalize deals uh, with existing owners uh, prior to year 15, but the bulk of them are—it's pr it's a pretty standard structure. The bulk of the bulk of deals sell in year 14 or 15 or 16. Mm -hmm. it, you know, it, if if that time frame makes more sense for the the existing ownership structure. And why would they go? Not get, is it? Would they not get tax credits at year 15 again because it's just hard to get them, or they're not available? Generally? In, in in some places they're not available. They're generally limited by um, by by bond cap, and and that's an allocation of uh, effectively allocation of uh, of a particular type of bonds that states are allocated. And so I could rattle off a couple. Like New York is always limited. California is always limited. New Jersey is always limited. Um, and then in the last couple of years, I believe I might get some of these wrong, but Texas, Colorado, Georgia, uh, other states with like large portfolios of what we would call expiring, you know, tax credit properties no longer have this kind of infinite well, um, mm. because the demand is large. And if you think about it, that's, it's tied to a couple of things. It's tied to, um, the, the, um, the, the, the volume of those bonds that's available to those States and whether that has changed or, uh, kept up with times and also speaks to the, the volume of tax credit properties that were produced, you know, 10 to 15 years ago. And so you've kind of got this, you know, 10 to 15 years ago, there were there were a lot and going back, it's more like 15 to 20 years, there were a lot of tax credit properties, you know, built across the country. And 
15 years ago, nobody was thinking about whether there was going to be enough bond cap, you know, <laughs> years later, they just want yeah. to get the deals done. Um, so there's, there's a need, there's generally speaking, like a need for capital in this space. And, you know, our particular flavor of capital helps to fill at least one of those types of gaps. Gotcha. And you also mentioned that you help convert, I think, market rate to affordable units. Is that something? And how, how does that I didn't even really know that was a thing. How, how does that, how do you do that? Yeah. So that's, um, you know, I would say if I were talking about kind of our equity portfolio, we've got about, you know, a, a third of, you know, ta the tax credit deals that I was talking about that, you know, don't need another round of tax credits. And we, we own and operate them as existing affordable housing under, under the regulations that they, they have. Um, uh, another third is set project-based section eight with operating subsidy from HUD. And then the rest of our portfolio is, um, kind of, I would say like creatively tailored um, uh, deals that we have been able to put together with um, with various local and state governments uh, and also through partnerships, unique partnerships with, um, with housing authorities and uh, other governmental or quasi-governmental agencies across the country where we acquire a property that doesn't necessarily have any papered, you know, recorded affordability restrictions and typically through a negotiation for, you know, some favorable financing or some favorable property tax treatment, um, we, we, we effectively can buy a market rate property and then take that benefit and like the net effect is we can lower rents or, or keep rents, you know, papered and, um, and restricted at a, at a non-market level for some or all of a property for, you know, the next 10, 20, 30 years. And our long-term capital allows us to kind of set up structures like that in partnership with um, really with other even longer term entities in terms of governments um, mm. and housing authorities and so on and so forth. And, and, and we've had, we've had a lot of success in, in structuring deals like that, that are, they're one off until you do 10 of them. And then it's a, and then it's a program. <laughs> and why, why do they, why is it long-term capital? Is it like, do these investors just okay hold like not, like why why are they long instead of short? Is there like do these I guess invest big investment shops, banks, whatever they invest with you guys? Like are they just allocate a certain portion of their their money towards you know long term investing for some reason? And why would they do that? Well, I think it's um, the way it's it's more related to to how we raise the capital within the company and not necessarily the um, the how that capital looks to our investors. So instead of raising a fund and telling a group of investors that we're going to take $100 million from them and deploy it over the next two years, season the properties or, or do whatever the, you know, the fund's goal is, and then sell them in four years or five years or start selling that, that portfolio off. It, instead, we, we, we don't, we don't raise our money in these, in those captive vehicles. We've, we've, or we haven't to date, I should say, um, you know, we raise all of the, the, the enterprise level equity capital th through the, through the REIT structure. So mm. it, it all it all goes into the same pool, and we 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 have been very successful in managing uh, liquidity needs and requirements of our institutional cap capital that invests in CDT, um, such that we've had you know repeated success in going out and raising series after series after series of you know selling common shares, selling preferred shares, raising other debt instruments, and really leveraging our balance sheet you know from from that perspective. So um, the 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 capital might you you could think of it. Another way to think of it is 
you know, if, even if we raise 10 year capital at a time at the enterprise level, it's constantly replacing itself, but it's mm. not constantly replacing itself at the property level, which is the, the, the mission of yeah. the long term that we do when we make investments in properties that have, you know, real people living in them. And where did the mission come from? Like, did someone start CD, CDT? Like, where, where did it begin? And like, kind of, how, why, why is it so mission driven? Um, well, we we come from the world of uh, we we come from the world of of CDFIs, and we we spun out. Um, there are a couple steps here that I'm going to get wrong um, because That's they right. happened they happened <laughs> 22 years ago. Um, you don't got to give me the yeah, just, general overview is good. <laughs> yeah. So so C a predecessor to CDT called Limax spun out of uh, out of Lisk, a large national CDFI with a, a what's a, a CDFI. Uh, community Development Financial Institution, gotcha. uh, which is a treasury designation uh, and uh, provides access to, you know, um, some treasury products and also to, uh, uh, they don't just stamp every, anybody as a CDFI. So you, you you get kind of a seal of approval from the, you know, fr from the treasury department that you're an organization that has this mission and you do that, right? Gotcha. Um, and so there was a predecessor organization to CDT that spun out of LISC. Um, the Local Initiative Support Corporation, uh, which is just an enormous national um, nonprofit CDFI. And uh, it, CDT kind of, I think, you know, my, my understanding of the history is that CDT started uh, with, with kind of two goals. One goal was to, uh, to provide long-term equity capital and, and do the kind of things that we, we definitely still do today. And also to, um, to build a second, to help build a secondary mortgage market for small balance um, permanent debt on tax credit deals, which in the nineties were, um, not really seen as like favorable instruments for banks to buy and hold, you know, they would make the tax credit investment, but they didn't want to also provide the debt and also hold that on their balance sheet. Um, and you know, Fannie and Freddie were not, were not active in this space, uh, at that time. So, uh, so we, we built a portfolio of, uh, by forward committing or, or acquiring portfolios from from banks and, and uh, you know regional lenders uh, for a nonprofit, uh, and and I would say demonstrated to the market that these instruments you know while they're small on an individual deal basis that they are incredibly like safe and strong risk adjusted you know instruments to you know hold on your balance sheet potentially participate and create further liquidity from from that that we could plow back into the community development world and and in particular the the world of preserving affordable housing so good answer you got it that was our that was our <laughs> debt side yeah and on the equity side we the whole the whole the whole goal um was you know cdt was going to provide this long on the debt side cdt was going to provide this long-term debt product that no one else really wanted at the time we've um, we often say uh, around the, around the office that we 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 made the world safe for capitalism, and now there's an enormous amount of <laughs> interest in acquiring and holding those those loan products, um, and so that's great. <laughs> you know? yeah, yeah. And, and and the long term ethos, you know, comes from we're we're going to make long term mortgages, and they're going to be a stable product for small and mid sized properties that don't have a lot of debt, but you know. Need, need to have stable long-term capital in them from the debt side. And the equity business is exactly the same in terms of its its kind of funding ethos and um, and what we wanted to do. We we want to make investments that are plain and boring and <laughs> preserve affordable housing and 
don't reduce affordability ever and be in those deals forever. That doesn't yeah. always align well with the market, you know. So um, it's a it's a delicate dance as as the affordable housing world and the affordable housing investment community grows and changes over time too. And so you are the SVP head of acquisitions on the equity side, correct? That's um, correct. What I mean, that's a big role. I'm sure there's a lot of people listening and be like, "Wow, I really would love to be the SVP head of acquisitions." <laughs> <laughs> what exactly do you do? What does that mean? What is it? What do you do? What's your job? So I, I spend a lot of times um, not necessarily sourcing like individual property deals, but really sourcing um, partnerships and relationships that, you know, we, we're, it's not, it's not a hugely efficient use of my time and our, our, you know, pretty lean staff's time to go out and find a property and then go find an operator for it and have, you know, do this, do the setup of all of the, you know, property level stuff. What, what, what I really try to do is um, I spend a lot of time both negotiating and structuring partnerships and joint ventures with affordable housing developers and operators, and also really just getting to know people and getting to understand whether, um, whether they're a good fit for us in terms of not just their you know, philosophy, but also their business plan. And, you know, the, the kind of like the three pieces of that, that, you know, for me at least, are uh, kind of key are like ident identifying alignment and misalignment. So mm -hmm. whenever we're thinking about working with somebody um, or somebody new, I should say, you know, we want we always want to think about what if what if things go right and how does this look? But then what if things go wrong? How does that look? And there are a different set of outcomes for different types of partners that we have across the country. You know, it's um, people with a strong balance sheet have a different tolerance than people with a weak balance sheet um, or, or a weaker balance sheet, but who may be ascendant in the industry. Um, and similarly, we partner with um, with both for-profit entities and non-profit housing provider entities. And there's just a different set of, um, uh, there's a different set of, of, of options available to act as a responsible, you know, industry member uh, for, for those different types of groups. It doesn't mean that we treat anybody differently from, from one another, but the, the reality is that the community development trust is probably not going to foreclose or kick out a nonprofit housing provider, <laughs> right? It's, it's not something that you get to do more than once and you never really want to do it at all. So we're very, we're very, we're very choosy, not just in like, not just with who we work with, but um, how we work with them and how we structure joint ventures so that there's maximal alignment between, between our groups um, across the mission aspect and also across the economic aspect. Um, so that's kind of like, that's, that's, that's one, that's one of the kind of like pillars of how I approach what I do. Mm. Um, another is like, just don't be a jerk, right? <laughs> um, you know, I, I want to do this for another 30 plus years. CDT wants to do this for another hundred plus years. Um, nobody likes working with a jerk and yeah. you don't, you don't build repeat relationships with good actors, you know, not, not, not being reasonable with, with other people. And kind of tied to that is is um, we try to be and I try to be as clear with my potential partners um, about it, like intentions and honesty about how we how we want to approach a given investment, and that's got a that's a that's a key kind of floor to get on with a with a with another dance partner um, before you before you, before you before you go dancing.
Are, are you finding these partners? Are they finding you? Are you going to conferences? Like kind of what, how's that work? It's, it's a combination of both, but we, we definitely try to get out there as much as possible. There are, you know, probably four or five large, larger, larger um, uh, affordable housing developer conferences that we show up at. Um, we also, we do a lot of work uh, or we put a lot of, we put a lot of time into making sure that the, um, the most mission aligned groups that, that operate in ways that, that we, we think that we can be a helpful addition to their, their team and capital stack, um, that they know who we are, that they know what our intentions are and that we can connect them with, um, other similar groups that we've worked very well with and would, will speak well. So, uh, you know, the, a lot of the, the marketing that, that we do and that I do, it, it, it really focuses on like, Hey, we're not jerks. And, um, and this is what we do. And you should really talk to your, this other person that I know is a friend of yours and they'll vouch for us. And we do what we're saying we're going to do and we treat people fairly and we're looking for the same thing. And if that alignment works with what we all want to achieve, um, you know, there's, the sky's the limit. And what is like, what's the main skill set? I would say for not just your role, maybe people work for you. Like, do you have to know really good underwriting? Uh, do you have to learn the different regulations. I mean, what's, it sounds like a lot of it is community, you know, communications and rapport with, with your, your, with your partners or potential partners. But besides that, like what's, what else is, is going on day to day? So, so I, I think it's the, having a solid foundation from an underwriting perspective is, is, is critical. Um, you know, being able to identify where things could go better and where things could and may go worse is, 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 is useful from an all eyes open perspective. Um, you know, we are uh, knowing the regulatory side of this is there are, you know, mo at this point, you know, in 2020, most existing 15 year old tax credit properties have much more like form forms, right? The state's got a handle of this stuff. They didn't have a good handle of it in the 80s and 90s, and every every regulatory agreement looked different, and every partnership <laughs> agreement looked different, and that 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 world has largely been. Um, at least certainly now looking forward has been, you know, standardized, um, similar to, to the debt products that, that tend to go along with, 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 with those executions. So th there's, um, there's definitely value in, in understanding the regulations, being able to kind of like quickly look at a regulatory agreement and say, okay, this is, this is, these are the real terms here and moving forward, like this is what we're going to do. Um, that's probably a little bit more deep on the, you know, on the HUD, on the, sorry, on the, on the HUD regulated side. Um, where there is, where everything comes with a, you know, minimum 20, 30 year um, history of what HUD has done, how they've changed their rules. Is there anything sticking around from the seventies on this property? And mm -hmm. it's those, that's where you, you should hire a good HUD counsel to make yeah. <laughs> you, you really understand what you're getting into because those are not, those are not, those are rarely good surprises to uncover. Uh, later on from the from the federally regulated the HUD regulated stuff versus the stuff that flows <laughs> through tax credits in the states. Um, so that stuff is all very important. But I, I think at the end of the day, the um, being able to navigate like uh, an evolving um, and if the, the evolution of a potential transaction or a potential partnership and being able to not only kind of communicate your concerns and thoughts um, to your partner, uh, is, is, is just, is, is absolutely key. And, you know, the, the, at the, at the like coldest level, I would say that we definitely know the value of a quick no, like where we've, 
I'm, I'm very, I'm, I'm very careful to train, to help train my staff to understand what does not work for us mm-hmm. and to be able to tell people that as quickly as possible, because, you know, that if they want to find capital to do something, that means they have something in mind. And we, you know, we either need to identify if and how it could work for us very quickly and voice that, or if not say no and, you know, let them go find somebody else to work with on, on that particular endeavor. Yeah. Now tell me about you. Did you grow up? You're like, man, I really want to be in affordable housing. Like you're kind of affordable <laughs> housing dolls and figures when you're a kid. Like where did you grow up? Like how did you get an interest in real estate? And uh, Sure. This will be a long answer because the, the short answer is like, yeah, I fell into it like everybody else does. Yeah. <laughs> um, so I, I grew up outside of outside in the suburbs of Pittsburgh and I went to college in Michigan um, and I studied engineering to, to pay my way. I, I love science. I love math. My brain is wired that way. Um, I love problem solving. You know, uh, I got an incredible education there with very specific like technical subject matter that I have never used a day in my life. <laughs> you took I the hard college. course through. I did the humanities liberal arts part. You know, you took the hard course through college where you had to study a lot. Yeah. Well, I guess I kind of wound up in the humanities uh, liberal oh, yeah. arts world more yeah. so with, with intent anyhow. But um, you know, so uh, the thing that I would say that I that I did use from that experience is the. Um, is like the problem solving approach inherent in an engineering education. So mm. I, I engineer things all day long. They're just partnerships and they're softer. They are, there's back and forth. There's a, there's a broader like ecosystem of, um, you know, there are problems at the micro level, but also at the systems level that myself and my staff need to, and my team need to be, be aware of. So, you know, the, the idea that like, that things are dynamic, that even like, that like science is dynamic and and things that exist in the real world from a material science and engineering perspective and a mechanical engineering perspective they're all dynamic and like mm. exist within these broader systems is is also true of transactional real estate i suppose at the end of the day so yeah. um when i was at school i was also doing a, a decent amount of, of student activism centered around labor and um economic inequality mm-hmm. and so that has followed me through um just as a as a as a as a personal kind of driver that's that's kind of, that's shaped that both spoke to and shaped my professional ethos mm-hmm. as, as it's evolved over time um and and guided what i what i wanted to do after college and so i just kind of uh, like truly i i i like picked housing and was like everyone <laughs> needs to live somewhere and not everybody has a place to live and even when people have a place to live uh, it's not always affordable to them, and their their impact that has impacts on you know family well being, education. It has so many spillover impacts because it's a it's a primary you know pillar yeah. of stability in people's lives. Um, so I knew I didn't want to be an engineer, but I loved cities. I loved I got really into housing policy. I interned at a few places between you know uh, undergraduate and graduate school, a mm-hmm. few national nonprofits in DC. Um, and I had also taken some graduate urban planning cl- courses uh, at Michigan. So I, I went to go get my master's in urban planning from NYU. Uh, you know, I was in my early 20s. New York's a great place to be in your early yeah, 20s. Yeah, um, yeah, totally. So that I'd be lying if I said that wasn't the drive, wasn't part of the drive of that. Um, and so when I was at NYU, I, I worked at, at the Furman Center, uh, which is an amazing policy shop. Um, and from there went to work for the, uh, for the, for the, for the New York city department of housing preservation and development. 
And it just so happened that I, I was there working on a, um, like a very small research and strategy focused inter internal consulting team, mm. um, which these things were like very big in the, in the mid 2000s in government. And they probably are still, I'm just not there anymore. Uh, and I, I did that while, um, while Sean Donovan, uh, who wound up being the HUD secretary, uh, was the commissioner of that agency. So it was, a, it was an amazing time to be in New York. This was kind of like pre and leading into the recession where where like new and interesting policies were being developed to like ride the market wave up and mm -hmm. also react very quickly to this market collapse that we all lived you know lived in particularly on the real estate side in in 2008 2009 um so i got to see a lot of how that policies was made and executed um at one of if not the kind of premier municipal government agency um and i also think that you know when when folks are thinking about what kind of work they want to do or what they, they might want to do that seeing things from the government side is can be extremely useful and and um, provide context for how one potentially approaches that from from a different space in an industry in the future um, but it's also you know my experience on on the government side was the same as as, as many people's experience where you know, you're, you're doing a lot of things that are below your pay grade and you're doing a ton of stuff that is way above your pay grade. Yeah. And you really shouldn't be doing it. <laughs> like yeah. There's nobody else to do it or, you know, there's, there's too much to do and not enough people. Um, so you get handed a lot of things that are above your pay grade and you get to, you get to swim and sink a little bit, but with, you know, strong leadership there, there's, there's, there's a, it's a, it's a good career path. I, I'm, 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 I'm thankful in retrospect. It was a good career path in terms of gaining a lot of knowledge as quickly as possible and learning from some mistakes that other people let you make a little bit, but not, it doesn't get all the way to the, the, the yeah. final policy. Right? Would you so, recommend people who have an interest in affordable housing or is it affordable or just housing in general to spend a little time in the government, like at the HPD or, or any of those agencies? Absolutely. A hundred percent. And some of my, I would say some of my strongest relationships and some of my, um, uh, strongest like aligned philosophies are with uh, contemporaries in city government. Um, mm -hmm. And that I think also speaks to kind of what CDT does and why it's, why it's a good fit for me is uh, we ultimately have the same goal and that is to preserve and create as much affordable housing as we can and to find the most um, efficient and effective structures to, to do that. And, you know, it's not just about developer fees and leak leakage of, you know, fees and money and whatnot to make, make, make people in the private sector rich. It's, it's really a collaborative effort. Um, and you know, th there's a, there's a lot to learn and see within government. I would say particularly in a, in a regulated, you know, housing mm -hmm. world. Um, but also even from just like a planning perspective and a, a zoning perspective, you can, you can learn a lot about, you know, how and how to build and how to not build and how to approach and how to not approach particular types of housing uh, at it all across the country there's it's not do you just use that now on like do you ever like just kind of help does it help you navigate certain government agencies you got to work with now or, or is that part it, of your job still yeah definitely and it's um because when we think about our like our partnerships um particularly with with um with the part of our portfolio that requires uh new, new capital from the public side that might be more discretionary or um, uh, that that might be a little bit 
it's not just tax credit capital. It's not, it's not just, just money that already looks the way that it does. Um, so in, in kind of structuring those re- both requests and dialogues with, I would say our partners at, at, at these public agencies, um, ha- having a sense of where they're coming from and what their motivations are and like really aligning those conversations and doing that genuinely, uh, is enormously helpful. Um, mm-hmm. It, that plus the integrity of you know CDT and what I've tried to do over the last twenty years is it goes it goes a long way with a long term vision. How did you make the transition? I'm sure there's a lot of people who want to. Or, I mean, I've worked with people who are trying to get out of the public sector and into the private sector, and it's not extreme. You know, it's it's good training, but it's not it's super easy to get out right once you're in. Um, but how did you make that transition, and and how did you find uh, CDT? So my, um, I had a professor in graduate school who was the president and CEO of CDT and still is to this day. Oh, okay. <laughs> uh, and so, uh, w- but before I get there, uh, when I was at the city, I, I wanted to, I wanted to better understand, like, I, 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 I don't want to say like I got the government side cause it's an enormous you know <laughs> thing to get, but I, I, I felt like I, I understood what I was going to understood in that, understand in that time frame, And I wanted to kind of learn two things. One was how does the biz, how does business and capital work? Because I was in this, I was on government, you know, like I, I, <laughs> I was on the government side and I wasn't really even on the like development side of government. You know, I was doing like policy stuff, like yeah. mostly abstract, not individual buildings and transactions and structuring things. So I wanted to understand that on a more granular level, which I thought was actually going to more inform my policy brain. Um, and I also wanted to um, to see how affordable housing worked outside of New York City because it is <laughs> it is while it is a large affordable housing kind of market community um, whatever yeah. whatever you want to call that it's it's idiosyncratic and it works in its own way and it works differently than other places in the country. So I, I wanted to kind of expand kind of my horizon. Um, so you guys are all that. over the country. You guys invest all over the country. We're all over the country. We're in forty four states um, and. There isn't. We're we're fully opportunistic as far as if something works for us and we believe that we can execute a, a mission outcome, we're gonna we're we're gonna look at it. Cool. So we'll, we'll go anywhere. So anyhow, I I had uh, I called my uh, I I sent an email to this who was a former professor and said, you know, what do you guys do? You guys do work outside of the city, but you're located in the city, and I want to keep living here. And um, and they happen to have an opportunity on the asset management side. Um, which was not necessarily what I, I didn't know what I didn't want to do, but I also didn't know what I really wanted to do. Um, but the one thing that was most appealing about that, that role was uh, CDT is a, is a debt provider, provider and also an equity investor. And mm. our asset management team, obviously, they asset manage both of those portfolios. And so I really, I, I, I saw the opportunity as one where I could learn as much as possible about like two distinct capital positions um, that compete right in, in motivations and intents and execution uh, uh, th- throughout the life of, a, of, of an investment, and so I did that. And I always I always use the example of you know in my in my first month on the job, I would field a phone call from a borrower who wanted who wanted to wanted us to release some reserves or something, and they would say, uh, I, "I did this work. I want you know this is capital work. I want to release the reserves." And I would hem and haw and say, "I don't know. I'll have to have to look at that." And I'd hang up the phone and I'd pick it up and I would call one of our one of our lenders and ask for the exact same thing or like <laughs> a, 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 a similar you know 
I would talk to a partner and say, can we, can we release those replacement reserves and fund <laughs> more work at the property? So it's, it's um, all of that with an eye towards, I wanted to learn as much as possible about, uh, about perspectives and viewpoints. And then obviously like the technical side of underwriting and mm-hmm. uh, how, how this stuff works mechanically. Did you know how, did you know how to asset manage properties when you got there? You just kind of, I had no idea. Yeah. I, and <laughs> I, I, I had an, I had, I had some thoughts, but they were mostly wrong and, uh, <laughs> and that's okay. You know, I, I think uh, I, I also learned at that point that, you know, you don't have to be an expert on something before you learn it because that's, mm-hmm. you know, that's right. So you, just, you were just taking initiative. You reached out to your professor. Obviously, you were swimming in the right pool where these people were located. So they knew who you are, kind of. And they're like, hey, we like him. He's a smart guy. Let's bring him in and maybe, you know, he can help us, right? Type of thing. Yep. And 10 years, 10 years later, here, here, here we are. And how did you? So do you think having the asset management, like I know I work with a lot of people and they're like, I don't want to do asset management. I don't want to do asset management. Or, you know, though I want to do acquisitions. I mean, do you think having that asset management background has helped you in, in acquisitions without a doubt. And the, it, it, there are, there are two primary ways that, 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 that I would say that that is the case. The first is I saw what didn't work, right? I saw when you're an asset manager, you, you pay a lot more attention to the things that don't work out or don't work out properly or have a problem to solve. And usually those things weren't um, thought about on the (laughs) acquisition side. So it it made it definitely made me a better um, a better originator and a, and a better you know acquisition execution uh, deal structurer um, because I was aware of I got to learn from I don't want to say other people's mistakes but like when when a market goes sour like what do you do and how do you mm. solve it and how can you set up the next deal so that that issue doesn't come up right or it doesn't you know throw a deal into question um, so so definitely from that perspective it it, it also gave me an understanding of um, of what underwriting practices are just pro forma and what ones, if you really care about making a long-term investment, you have to think about and implement in your practice upfront so that it's not a problem in mm. five years, seven years, 10 years. So yeah. I, I learned like mechanical stuff and also philosophical stuff coming from that direction. I know it's not the most natural direction and people that, that tend to be on portfolio management and asset management tend to continue to do that. But um, there was a lot of value uh, for, for me and it gave me a, a better grounding where I had none previously uh, in understanding, you know, what doesn't work. Yeah. And I think uh, even if I find, you know, firms, even if they're, you're an asset manager and you're not officially acquisitions, like you, they like to bring the asset managers into the process of the property. Cause they see, yeah, you see, you see the performer come to fruition, right? You see it with the actual physical asset, right. As opposed to just the performer. So um, you can, the asset manager can work with the acquisitions person to kind of spot potential problems, right? Before and absolutely. Right. So yeah, yep. I think that's because I, I think people just kind of overlook. Uh, yeah, I mean, most people who I know who have done both uh, come from a- asset management to acquisitions are just yeah, are just m- much more well rounded. Um, and those are the people who are kind of like like you are like leading teams and like our director of acquisitions because mm-hmm. you can see the whole bigger picture. Yeah, it's, it's um, really hard to lie to yourself, like when, when <laughs> <laughs> up front. <laughs> so what, what, yeah. So what's the what's the state of affordable housing now and, and CDT and like what what do you guys you know COVID and 
Right. Fires so, in California and you know, all, <laughs> what's happening we, in the we, world. We, we try not, we try not to buy in areas of like intense environmental distress. So, <laughs> yeah, okay. uh, so not speaking to COVID, but you know, speaking to this moment and speaking to COVID, our, our current standing and our portfolio performance has, um, has been, has been, has been stable. And I think that's partially a function of, you know, our, from an investment perspective, providing below market rate housing sh- should be safer from a risk adjusted. It should just, from a risk adjusted perspective, it's, it's going to be less risky. Um, you know, we're optimistic, but we're not complacent given the risks. And there, there's a, there's a pretty sizable pool of affordable housing properties and assets out there that, you know, they really serve, um, I would say like, uh, f- folks that earn wages in industries that have been ex- extremely beaten down, uh, mm-hmm. from an employment perspective. So when you look at that, like bottom 40% of, of wage earners, um, the, the unemployment in that group has absolutely skyrocketed. And that's a, that's a large, that's a large portion of the rental pool for a lot of tax credit housing uh, all across the country. Mm-hmm. Um, and so there's like, there are real risks there and, and, you know, um, I, I I don't have any political statements to make, but the do the, it. The pan, well, the pandemic <laughs> unemployment insurance is like I'm not saying anything that's controversial. It's it's yeah. it's been critical in 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 propping up anywhere where capital flows from individuals to mm. institutions, right? And um and real estate and our broader industry, all you know, from the investor side to the debt side to the GSE side, is all. Um, is all tied together with that. So I'm, I'm, I remain optimistic that pandemic un- unemployment insurance will be extended um, and should be as rich or at least as rich as it has been mm-hmm. um, because that makes a real impact on, on people, families, and then these broader institutions in our economy. Um, so all that said, we are, we are still pursuing business without a doubt on, on, on the, on, on the acquisition side. Uh, you know, we're doing that with caution. We're making sure that we're looking at things with a clear view as to what, what they might be like for the next, you know, one to three years, if, if not longer. Um, mm-hmm. and we're also being a little bit more choosy about the property types that we're investing in, um, and the, the markets that, that we're investing in. Um, I don't think that there's a huge presently, there's not like a huge distressed market or anything like that. Um, and we'll see whether that comes up and it rarely does on the, in the affordable housing world as well. Um, so we're not, we're not really focused on that because it, it doesn't really exist. Um, and that's part of the structuring of the initial transactions and the government involvement and the tax credit equity and so on and so forth or operating subsidy. If you have a project based section eight property, um, you know, but broadly speaking, like our philosophy and our investment philosophy has given us stability and we benefit from that in times like this. Mm. Like we, we wrote yeah. out 2008, 2009, you know, very well. We didn't, we didn't acquire anything during that period, but our portfolio performed extremely well, you know, risk relative or same store to the rest of the world. Um, and, you know, we're also doing a lot of, we're focusing a lot of our time on uh, improving technology within the company to better position us for uh, where we'll, where we'll be and want to go in 2021 and 2022. Um, so we're, we're taking we're taking this time to address systems and enhance systems um, and and you know build efficiency and effectiveness there. Uh, the other thing that we're doing that everybody in the world is doing right now is uh, we, we've we've accessed a lot of the the very low cost debt that's available right now and we've you know where 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 it made sense economically we've refinanced and generated a lot of liquidity Mm -hmm. um so that 
you know, not only because it's the right thing to do is to plow as much 3% money into a, uh, an affordable housing property to set it up for the next 10 to 15 years, um, but also because that puts us in a strong position to, you know, to, to move on something that or some things that we want to move on in, in, the, in the next you know, 12 to 18 months. So, um, yeah, we're I, the, the theme as far as how CDT is doing is, uh, you know, stable and optimistic, but not complacent, given the, the broader risks that are out there right now. And, you know, we're in a time of of real uncertainty. It seemed like capital was flowing more towards affordable housing even before COVID. It was like this kind of like that part of the cycle where it was like a little more stable returns, right? Is that kind of? I, I always joke that when the brokers start sending out email blasts that say recession proof, that that you should, yeah. <laughs> that you should consider what you're doing. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Uh, extremely interesting. Are you, are you ready for the hot seat, Michael? Uh, yeah, let's do it. The Hot Seat is sponsored by KK Reset. KK Reset is an HR management and outsourcing consulting firm that specializes in helping organizations to reset their culture, structure, and path. They do this through services which include comprehensive consultation to identify gaps and opportunities for corporate training programs, HR services, and career mapping services. They've collaborated with nonprofit startups and academic organizations to protect them from liabilities reduce turnover and preserve their brands. They have also collaborated with a number of my clients on the real estate front who are not large enough to have their own in-house HR program. So they outsource it to KK Reset. KK Reset comes in, maybe sits on site a couple days a week and provides you know everything you need from an HR perspective for your, for your firm. So it's a great uh, resource for those shops who just maybe doesn't make sense for them to have in-house HR function. Um, so please check them out at kkreset.com, k-k-r-e-s-e-t.com. Getting hot in here. All right. These are the five and or six, not, not or, five or six questions we I ask all of my guests. Any books you recommend, whether affordable housing, life, business, you name it? Sure. Um, I think the I'm an urban planner by trade and my favorite kind of, I would say, overarching summary of planning as a profession and a, and a, and a, like a, a, a practice of ideas that, you know, are originally drawn on a piece of paper is, is the book cities of tomorrow. It gives just a wonderful, it's brief chapters that go through from, I think about 1900 or so up to, you know, when it was published, I think in the, in the nineties, um, to where we are today and an overview of like planning practices in the past, how they interacted with history, how they interacted with the particular, you know, governing structures of those times. Uh, and the geographies where they where they came about. So I would say, on the planning side, that would be that would be cities of tomorrow. I, I, I like planning too. I almost studied that. I I got to check. The, I don't know that one. I got to check it out. I like short chapters too, so that's good. Yeah, exactly. You can like <laughs> you can just like you can digest it right really quickly, yeah. and then you know when you have more time. Uh, and and the other book that I would that I that I really love that I've read in the last like three I guess it's three years or so is uh, Evicted from Matthew Desmond, which um, you know books like that that tie together like overarching kind of real estate markets and dynamics uh with government housing and government interventions or lack of intervention into housing with like the real human element of this and like they're one thing that i always am very cautious about remembering and reminding myself uh, about is that you know there are there are people that live in the housing that we invest in and have performers on and it's a piece of paper but it's it's much more than that and um being good stewards of the housing also means being good stewards of our residents and their their outcomes as well um so those those are the two books that i think that i would recommend 
Great. Thank you. How about a podcast and or since it's COVID time TV series? Oh, goodness. Um, <laughs> Uh, so as I mentioned, I have two two young kids, so oh, yeah, I, yeah. I I I don't have a lot of podcast. <laughs> yeah. uh, but I would the 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 things that interest me with podcasts are similar to what I was describing about the book that I recommended, which is the um, uh, fifteen to twenty minute digestible bites where I can start it and finish it, and then like not 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 have yeah. to think about where I left off. So I would say like the I I really enjoy uh, history type podcasts. So. History of Rome and um, and revolutions, which is which are done by the same the same individual. I would recommend those on the on the History podcast. History of Rome side. and revolution. Yeah, I, yeah. I've never. I've got to check that one out. I, I'm a big fan of that too. Yeah, so that's that's what I would say. And then TV is uh, I don't I got I got nothing. Um, yeah, no. <laughs> I'm glad sports are back on right. Yeah. <laughs> so the NBA playoffs. We'll go with that. All right, great. Um, do you have a favorite team? Is it? Uh, well, I grew up in Pittsburgh, so yeah. so not not really, but. Um, you know, I would, I I would I would like to see an eight seed beat a one seed, and yeah. we'll see if that happens. But that's that's more underdog than a particular team. <laughs> what do you like to do outside of work? You got two kids. I'm sure that takes up a lot of it. Yeah, well, I one of the nice things about that is that I love spending time with them. So that's good. Uh, that, that helps. That helps <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah. So, so like you know, at, at its at its base. And I think maybe in particular with respect to the time that we're in is, you know, getting to spend time with people that I love, both friends and family, and obviously properly distanced if, if with people that aren't in my bubble. Um, but being outside, you know, hiking, walking, fishing, um, uh, this having working remotely and being able to dictate the um, the the minutes in my day and the location where my body is has allowed me to do things like exercise which yeah. <laughs> i had forgotten about you know for quite some time yeah. and and then obviously in a non covid time like having being able to travel with my family and 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 someday travel with my wife again <laughs> just does yeah. it's something i look forward to very much i'm sure that's very you know, very universal at this point yeah i mean i have a 10 year old and yeah i'm doing stuff with him Going, whatever anything is just yeah it's the best just even going to the beach or hiking or something it's just fun um what advice would you give to your 20 year old self i would say i would say to 20 year old michael i would say um maybe have a little less fun and also <laughs> uh like as long i would i would probably tell myself that as long as you're committed to the work you're doing and you're willing to work hard um and collaborate with people in a, in, in a smart and thoughtful way. Um, and if you can also surround yourself with people that have similar intent, um, and drive, uh, everything will work out. Like, uh, my, one thing that I've learned over, over the last 20 years is that, um, people want to see other people succeed. And if you surround yourself with those people and you are one of those people, um, there's so much, there's, there's, there's so much leverage that comes from, positive relationships and mutual respect and um, like thought thoughtfulness of, of, of people with that mindset that everything, everything, everything will work out just fine. If you can tap into or create a network that, that reflects those sorts of, you know, kind of core principles. That's a great answer. I've actually been actively proactively trying to do that more in my life. Just like have regular meetings or, or phone calls with people that I respect or, want to learn from and just, you know, once sure. a month have a, have a call with them, just talk to them about what's going on in their life. Um, now I'm a recruiter, as you know. Um, so I'm sure a lot of people listening would want to know, what do you look for 
and hiring people. Right. Whether so, it's soft skills, you know, hard skills, or just kind of general attitude. So I think the the baseline is to have having some some ability to navigate like a real estate pro forma and under on just a basic understanding, nothing deep, nothing fancy. Just can you navigate that? So like I'll and then we'll just like put that to the side because I don't mm. think that's actually terribly important as long as there's like a base capacity there. Um, I would say the three things that I look for most are are intent. Um, if you want to work with me, you 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 have to want to do this work from a social purpose aspect. It doesn't necessarily have to be the driving force in your life, but you have to, you have to want to do it, right? Mm. It just, it's, um, I think it's critical for, uh, for living on the edge of, of mission and money um, to be able to always have a touchstone of, of mission to like be honest with yourself about what it is you're doing um, and what, what the company's doing, what you're recommending the company do and that, 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 that we do as a team. Um, the second thing I would say is I, I am a big fan of, um, of self-starters and that's, that's not to, that's not to say that I, I don't, I don't like to teach because I, I, I love to teach. I mm. miss teaching. I, I taught graduate level real estate finance classes for a couple of years, then had kids oh, cool. and ran out of time. And yeah. I would do that again in a heartbeat. And I hope to, you know, later on, uh, when my kids are a little older. So like I treasure those teaching opportunities, but the best way of learning in my experience is by doing, failing, and fixing, and conversing, and like uh, having feedback loops for 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 learning in an efficient way, where you know you learn by you. I learn by mistakes. Not everybody learns the same way, but uh, mistakes can be a great way to learn as long as that's done in a nurturing environment, and that's that you're not uh, learning yeah, totally, by mistake yeah. in a negative place. So not just being shown how to do something. So mm -hmm. again, self starters, and then the last is is the softest, but maybe the most important, which is, um, I look for people that are, that are clear and honest communicators. So like in transactions, and then even in moments of like closings where you've got to get something done that moment, it's, it's extremely important to communicate clearly and honestly with your partners, lenders, government partners. It's, it's, it, that just always has to be, that has to be a part of it. Not, not just what you say, but how you say it and mm. being aware of the dynamics of that is, 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 is critical. Well, you are a very clear communicator and I appreciate your, <laughs> thank you for that. Well, Michael Lear, SVP and head of acquisitions at the community development trust. Thank you for your time. That was great. Thank you, Chris. My pleasure. We hope you enjoyed this episode of the TBG real estate podcast. Please visit us online at tbg-realestate.com or on Instagram at tbg.realestate. Until next time, have a great week.